The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning. Welcome to this Friday edition of Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines. European leaders offer Theresa May an eight-week delay to Brexit after eight hours of talks. But that extension will shorten if she can't get her deal through Parliament next week. What this decision tonight does is show the clear choice that is available, uh, uh, open to MPs. Getting the deal through next week in a meaningful vote means that we can have that extension to the 22nd of May, get our legislation through, deliver on the referendum. In market action, the Dow jumps more than 200 points as a strong buy call on Apple drives shares to a four-month high ahead of a special press event next week. Deutsche Bank supervisory board meets and reportedly discusses a merger with Commerce Bank. While CEO Christian Seving is said to see the rationale for its tie-up. Chinese President Xi Jinping kicks off a visit to Italy as Rome's support for China's Belt and Road strategy puts the country at odds with its US and EU allies. Very good morning, everybody. Let's get into the latest on Brexit then. We do have some interesting developments here. Sterling edging higher against the dollar after Theresa May secured a short extension to the Brexit deadline. European leaders offered the British uh, Prime Minister a chance to delay the UK's departure from the EU until the 22nd of May if she manages to get her deal approved in Parliament next week. Should she fail for the third time, that deadline is brought forward to the 12th of April, at which point Britain must, quote, indicate a way forward. Well, let's get out to Willem in Brussels. And Willem, um, this is fascinating. Theresa May is making enemies everywhere she goes. That speech uh, to to the British public uh, accusing Parliament of being the problem will have enraged parliamentarians. Does that make it likely that she will actually be able to get this bill through? I mean, if you listen to their comments in public in the parliamentary chamber on Twitter, Jeff, you can see the anger from many MPs and the concerns they have about their own personal safety, given the prime minister essentially laid out the decision between the country, the people and the parliament itself. In terms of her vote next week, what's really interesting going into this meeting is that it felt like her options were narrowing, that time was drawing in close around the British prime minister. And yet, if you listen to Donald Tusk, the EU Council president, last night after these meetings finally wrapped up, he said, actually, no, some avenues have been left open. Take a listen. What this means in practice is that until that date, all options will remain open and the cliff edge dates will be delayed. The UK government will still have a choice of a deal, a no deal, a long extension, are revoking Article 50. The 12th of April is a key date in terms of the UK deciding whether to hold European Parliament elections. If it has now decided to do so by then, the option of a long extension will automatically become impossible. 
And so this two-tier set of options that the Europeans have put to the British leader essentially predicate on the idea that as of April 12th, the UK would have to decide whether it's going to participate in those elections, would have to legislate for those elections, would have to start fielding and campaigning on behalf of candidates for those elections. And so Theresa May essentially has an extra couple of weeks and yet still has this difficulty with Parliament that she's going to have to try and persuade them that a much longer extension is on the table, as indicated by what the Europeans have said last night, if they don't vote for her deal. And again and again, I must emphasize the people we spoke to, the heads of state arriving ahead of that meeting said they hoped and they wanted her deal that they've, of course, been negotiating with the British government for more than 18 months would eventually pass. Take a listen to how Theresa May framed the choice for lawmakers. What this decision tonight does is show the clear choice that is available, uh, uh, open to MPs. Getting the deal through next week in a meaningful vote means that we can have that extension to the 22nd of May, get our legislation through, deliver on the referendum, leave the European Union and do it in an orderly manner. Uh, not getting that vote through means that we will obviously, as uh, the Council has said, come back to the Council before the 12th of April with a plan for the way, uh, for the way forward. Uh, but that, that, if it involves that further extension, would mean us uh, uh, candidates being stood in the European parliamentary elections. I think the choice is clear for people. So Theresa May has been left essentially with the choice that she quite liked as early as last week after that second attempt to get her vote through failed. That is the choice between a short technical extension in order to pass her deal or a much longer and uncertain one that will ultimately be at the discretion of other European leaders to decide on. Um, Villain, what about the, um, the, the, the Brexiteers at this point? What are they going to do? There was a lot of talk about how the ERG might fall in line. This is this uh, cluster of pro-Brexit MPs. They might fall in line because they fear the prospect of never leaving. But I wonder in this situation, given where Theresa May now stands, whether they are what waiting in the long grass for her failure. Well, certainly there have been conversations in Westminster over the last 48 hours, some of them quite public, about the Prime Minister's own future, especially on the back of that speech she gave in Downing Street earlier this week. In terms of what the Europeans have done here, which seems a quite clever approach, they've not said, you must vote for this deal, otherwise you have a hard Brexit, which would force people like the ERG potentially to take a decision that was not the one that Theresa May would like. By allowing this slightly longer time frame and by saying you can come back to us uh, with a different direction if you want to, that makes it harder for members of that European research group, that hardline cluster, as you phrased it, Jeff, inside the Conservative Party, to say, I won't be dictated to by Brussels. I will vote against this deal. And it does give Theresa May yet a bit more pressure she can bring to bear as she heads back to London this morning to try and restart those conversations both with members of her own party, with opposition lawmakers from parties like Labour, and also, crucially, of course, with members of the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland.
Willem, I want to get into the reaction there in Brussels because yesterday we saw Angela Merkel on the airwaves and it seemed as though the German tone was to take a fairly light or soft approach to try and help out the UK, help out Theresa May reach a deal. But in the backdrop, France, Spain, Italy, Belgium, other countries, countries did not want a delay to the process. How much of that voice really came to the fore yesterday and what does that mean in terms of how Europe intends to, to tackle this delay process from here? Well, in terms of the comments from European leaders heading into that meeting, most of them that we heard were pretty similar. They wanted the deal to go through and they wouldn't really answer specific questions about what would happen if it didn't. One exception, one notable exception was Emmanuel Macron, the French president. When he was asked what would happen if this vote doesn't go through Parliament next week, he essentially said, well, that will lead to a no deal situation. That's pretty obvious. And he said, you know, essentially, that's it. That was his final comment on the issue. So those discussions after that meeting over dinner as they continued late into the night, Mr. Macron was a strong voice, according to all the reports coming out of those meetings, saying that he would like a very early date, as early as May 7th, in order for there to be no conditionality attached to this offer. And yet others seemingly now unanimously have pushed him to accept this condition that's set into two different dates that gives Theresa May a little more flexibility and gives the Europeans a little more flexibility. No one has answered the question I've posed to them over the last 24 hours. What happens if this doesn't go through? What do you expect the Brits to come back with? And that's certainly not a question Theresa May so far has been prepared to answer either. Willem, thank you for that. We'll uh, come back to you a little later on in the morning as we monitor developments around this story. Just uh, um, uh, another story to update you on. We're getting some uh, flashes through from Swedbank. Uh, this is related to a money laundering investigation that uh, Swedbank commissioned as uh, its name was drawn into this widening probe around uh, allegations of money laundering in the Baltic region. The accusations, as you'll recall uh, from earlier in in the year relate to over three billion well it was actually 4.3 billion dollars worth of suspicious payments handled between 2007 and 2015 um, an initial investigation has been conducted on behalf of the bank by an organization called the forensic risk alliance the uh, results of that uh, analysis uh, will be published by Swedbank today but as a consequence of the findings, that information has now been passed on to the Swedish regulator and the, uh, the business under Birgitta Bonnesen has decided to commission a deeper investigation into activities surrounding the bank and a number of named individuals that were alleged to have been involved in money laundering. So let's just be very clear here. This is a, an interim report which clearly shows enough evidence to encourage the management of the bank to conduct a deeper review at this point and the Swedish regulator has been notified of the outcome of the report. So it's a bit of a watch this space and watch the share price at the open here because I think we've already seen um, quite a lot of pain in the share price related to uh, concerns around money laundering in that part of the world.
This update on the Forensic Risk Alliance, the report that's been produced by them, comes ahead of the shareholder meeting next week on the 28th, uh, where investors start to ask questions about what the likely fines are going to be, how that's going to impact the dividend. And there's some question marks too around Birgitta Bonnison, the CEO, whether she's handled the process effectively and whether she's communicated clearly to investors about the risks and the past dealings of the bank and whether she should stay in her position. So I dare say there's still some risk over the next week for investors with various outcomes around that dividend payout yeah, to the I CEO. Mean, specifically, Karen, the, um, the flashes that we've had this morning point out that the board has full faith in the CEO at this time. And when they say that, what does that well, mean? It's a bit like <laughs> the, the curse of the football manager, right. isn't it? We, we love the manager. They've been great. It's a shame we went down 3-1. Mm. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll wait and watch on this one because obviously the, the shareholders may have their own view, as you say. Let me take you to the action we saw stateside. A green splashing up on the board. It's a bit of a delayed reaction to a dovish Fed. Now, the market uh, was expecting to pour some money into risk on assets as the Fed removed those two rate hikes for 2019, replacing it with zero increases for the rest of this year. So the Nasdaq, S&P, Dow finally responding. Very strong bounce as you saw uh, markets really head back into the green. bit of data also helping out because we had a dovish Fed that also changed its assumptions around inflation, growth forecasts, unemployment, uh, which gave us a tone that perhaps things are not in as great shape as we had hoped. But the data yesterday came coming through upbeat. Initial claims for jobless people uh, fell more than expected. Uh, figures around uh, the economic growth really sort of helping offset that dovish stance. So the Nasdaq, 1.4% higher, more than uh, 1% firmer for the S&P 500 and gains too for the Dow to the tune of 8 tenths of a percent plus or 216 points. So the best day for the Dow since the 15th of February in terms of the Nasdaq extending its winning streak to five straight sessions and technology stocks out in front uh, a bounce of about 2.5%. One of the casualties, again, the financial sector, as you'd expect, and a lot of the bank analysts now raking over the NIMS and expectations and believe that there should be a downgrade for some of these names based on the likely income coming through from that key sector. When it comes to technology, I want to take you to a couple of names that, that move the market. Apple is a big one. Positive day. Uh, it's been up about nine positive sessions out of 10 as investors, again, banking on a highly anticipated event on Monday. We've had a string of different announcements around hardware over the past week. But the announcement on Monday is around the streaming television service. So uh, the stock bouncing on the likely expectation of what that will mean for earnings. A couple of big upgrades too from analysts, one in particular from Needham which is uh, now calling a strong buy on the stock and has a target price of $225 from the 195 roughly where it sits on markets today after that bounce of 3.6% yesterday. So it uh, now with its market cap just shy of being the world's largest public company on the back of those gains. And a quick look at Micron on the back of uh, numbers crossing yesterday from the company. It's uh, the memory chip maker having a, a boost on the stock on the back of its second quarter report card, 9.6% on the share price by the close. The Asian markets, this is how we're shaping up across the region. It is a slightly patchy session with China and Hong Kong tracking weaker, modestly down two tenths for China, about a third of a percent for Hong Kong. In contrast, Australia bouncing almost half of a percent, about a tenth of a percent on the Japanese stock market. So it is a little bit cautious. Again, mixed signals on the trade front that's been moving these markets. The Fed's been positive, but trade, are we going to reach a deal? And I think the jury is still out about where Chinese 
and US negotiators are out, despite the fact that there are talks penciled in on both sides uh, in China, but also then in uh, the United States. Uh, let me take you to the opening calls here in Europe. A bit of a mixed day yesterday as well, as we saw gains for the FTSE here in the UK and also for the FTSE MIB in Italy, but losses elsewhere on the boards. This morning, we're getting set up for more Brexit conversations as the market digests uh, a shorter or a longer extension, depending on whether a deal comes through. 23 down for the UK market at the outset. Italy, perhaps the one to watch as President Xi, the Chinese president, is in Italy and is looking at inking deals. 33 to the upside. That looks like the strongest single signal on this board as we count down to the Friday session. Yeah, and the market continues to grapple with the Fed announcement this week, Karen. Uh, Double Line founder Jeff Gunlack has told CNBC's Scott Wapner he was surprised the Fed announced plans to keep rates steady for the rest of the year. The so-called bond king said, quote, I predicted they would go from two hikes this year to half and everyone told me there was no way they would downgrade it that far, but they went even further. He continued, and what the heck is that one hike in 2020 thing about? The Fed has gone from, we got this, to we'll get back to you. Not reassuring. Goodluck also added the Fed's pivot away from further hikes indicated the S&P is still in a bear market. And um, he had this terrific line. He says uh, that uh, Jay Powell should have been more frank with the, uh, the world uh, and the global markets uh, and should have said something along the lines of uh, Trump demanded it or he's worried about Europe or China or the yield curve or retail sales or GDP now, but stop with the gaslighting. <laughs> now, worried about all of the above. I had to connect with some of the millennials in our newsroom this morning right. to actually find out what gaslighting means. And what did you come up with? Uh, and gaslighting means to, um, uh, to, to use, in effect, a psychological technique. Uh, so this is um, uh, to manipulate uh, an individual to the point where they doubt their own sanity. So this is when your, uh, your, your spouse keeps moving things around in the house. And then when you yeah, say, well, where, where is the, where, where is the, and then they say, well, you must be losing the plot. Right. You know, you've obviously got something going wrong up top because you can't remember where you left things or you walk into a room and can't remember why you walked into the room. Or you thought you turned the lights off and someone's actually turned them back on again. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So, so, so the point is this, Jeffrey Gunlack, just one of a growing clamor now who are saying that Jay Powell has done the wrong thing and they've been too aggressive uh, on the dovish side at this point. I take your, your point about investors second-guessing themselves because in many ways investors have been right when they've been calling the future path of rate hikes. So the market has always seen the Fed almost guide towards their assumptions, but that was not the case last year where the Fed was actually right. So in 2018, the Fed had it, the market didn't have it. So it does leave you second-guessing yourself as to whether you're going to be correct in 2019. If you look at where the Fed funds rate is now, the market is expecting a rate cut. And if you think you've still got this one rate hike out in the distance in 2020, it's at odds with that rate cut because it's hard to see the Fed going down only to go back up again in 2020. So who's right? Is the market right or is the Fed right at this point? And if you go on longer term history, you'd have to say the market is right. And therefore, it gives you the sense that, well, things are not that great. And we're not necessarily in that strong expansionary territory where interest rates are guiding slightly higher in that, that type of economic cycle. If we're seeing a rate cut, then mm. the good times are over, aren't they? We've had that last drink and it's time to go home now. And that's sort of gives investors an interesting perspective. Do you load up on risk assets? Do you keep on buying the market if we've already had the last drink and it's time to go home? 
or is it time to take stock and get very defensive out there? Uh, and just a final point, um, Jeff Gunlack, of course, uh, says he thought that the 30-year was going to 4%, and he has a forecast that the 10-year goes to 3.6%. Now, given what the Fed has done here, that blows those forecasts out of the water here. So do bear in mind, this is another market participant who is making comment here, and he has some concerns because his own forecasts are not playing out at this stage. So there might be a little bit of sour grapes. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.